Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome. I'm Jack Baca, pastor of the Village Church in Rancho Santa Fe, California, and you have tuned in to our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. We'll be looking at chapter 16, which is the final chapter in Paul's letter. We're studying this now in the week of May 2nd. It is our 17th lesson, and with this lesson, we will conclude the study that has taken us throughout the winter and the spring. I hope you've been enjoying it, and I hope you will enjoy this final look at Paul's word to us, a word, of course, that we now believe to be God's word to us. As we think about the entire letter to the Romans, it's important that we understand the overall message. Just like when you go on a long journey and you want to understand and remember what that journey has been, you go back to the beginning and review the highlights, review the major moments. And so let's do that for just a moment with Romans as we come to our concluding chapter. Paul's letter begins with a review, if you will, of the human condition. He begins with a conversation about how humanity has lost its way. We have become estranged from God. We are lost in a world of our own making, a world that's dysfunctional and dying because we are not God. We are not the creator. We are not the one who have set the parameters and the rules, if you will, for how life is meant to work. And yet in our own pride and disobedience, we have decided to try to do it our own way. No one is exempt from this indictment of the human plight. Jew and non-Jew alike have turned away from God. But... And that's an important qualifier. But God has rescued us. God has redeemed us along with the whole creation. He has done that in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And so God's call is for people to believe what he has done. That's what we call faith, simply believing that God has done something in Jesus that restores the whole creation. And then God's call is for people to be faithful, to amend our lives, and to begin again to make God the Lord of our lives. That's what I call faithfulness. There is faith, which is believing. There is faithfulness, which is then doing and acting and changing our lives. That life of faithfulness begins with trust in Jesus. Now, for those who do not trust that Jesus is the Messiah, Paul believes and scripture proclaims that still God has a plan and that God's plan will come to its appointed fruition. And so with thanks to God and with trust in his grace, Christians begin to learn a new way of life. That way of life is described for us in the later chapters of Romans, the ones we've been looking at the last few weeks. It's a way of life that issues forth in renewed relationships with others, relationships that are characterized by love, by selflessness, by humility, by peace, both within the community of faith and outside of the community of faith in the larger world with people who are around us. These are the broad outlines of of what Paul has discussed in great detail and what you have been studying in great detail in these weeks. And so now we come to the 16th chapter, 
the end of the letter. Let's begin reading with verses 1 through 16 and then verses 21 through 23 of chapter 16. I'd encourage you to have a Bible with you and to follow along with me in whatever translation you have. I'll be reading from the new, the new Revised Standard Version. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Chentrea, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus, and who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epineatus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my relative Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphonea and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, a mother to me also. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Timothy, my co-worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Let's look at this section for a few moments. And first of all, let me note in verse 22, where it says, I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. What that means is that Paul had dictated the letter to someone else who actually wrote it down. That was commonly done in the first century, and we know it was done with other of Paul's letters. Tertius is the scribe. He's the secretary, the one who put pen to paper, if you will. But Paul is the real author. Now, there is a debate about whether this chapter is original to the letter to the Romans, or perhaps might have been added later. The question arises because Paul admits at the beginning of the letter that he had never been to Rome. And so how could he know so many people in the church there? One answer to that question is that this segment of the letter is actually from a different letter written to a different church that in the course of the years before the New Testament was compiled came to be appended to the letter to Rome. 
We know that many letters circulated among the early churches and that it was many decades, even a couple of hundred years, before the church began to put all of these things together into something like what you and I might understand as the scriptures. And so it is very possible that in the process of translating and transcribing and copying and sharing the letters around, that things got mixed up and mixed around and put together and torn apart. That's one answer. There is another answer, though, and it's an intriguing one. You see, during the first century, it was easy, relatively so, for people in the Roman Empire to move around. The Romans had brought a degree of peace to that region of the world. They had created an amazing system of roads, and and it was frequent that people traveled. And so maybe Paul had met all of these people in his travels and in their travels, and now they had emigrated to Rome, the most important city, of course, of the empire. It's also possible that Paul had met people who had lived in Rome and then left Rome for a time, and perhaps lived in places where he had lived and traveled, like Corinth or Ephesus or Troas or other places. We know that around the year 49 AD, the emperor in Rome, Claudius, expelled many of the Jews from Rome because there was all kinds of political trouble with them and it was convenient for him to get rid of them. The first Christians, of course, were primarily Jews, and the Romans didn't know the difference between Jews who believed in Jesus as Messiah and Jews who did not. And so it's very possible that many of the Jews who left Rome during the expulsion in 49 were actually Christians, and that Paul had met them in churches and other places, and that now they had moved back, because we believe the letter to the Romans was written somewhere around the year 60 A.D., And so it's possible that Paul knew many members of the Roman church. We're never really going to satisfactorily answer that question unless, of course, we discover a whole lot of new books, a whole lot of ancient writings. But that's okay, because there's still a great deal that you and I can learn about this passage. It may seem strange to spend time reading all those weird names, weird to us now, But I actually love to read those names because they represent real people. People like you and me who gave their lives to Christ. And in learning from this passage, we learn about their faithfulness. We learn about their generosity and giving. We learn about the fact that they attested to their faith, even in the midst of great persecution. They worked for the good of the family of faith. They spread the good news of Jesus and learned the way of life that Jesus taught. This list is something like an early church directory, if you will, of people just like you and me who did the kinds of things that you and I still do, who believe the kinds of things that you and I still believe, and in that created the body of the church, that that family of people that tell the news about Jesus Christ and welcome people into the life that Jesus taught us to live. We learn also here about Paul's pastoral heart. Paul was a great theologian, and of course in Romans we have a wonderful summary of what Christian faith is all about. But it wasn't just about the theology. 
It wasn't just about what we believe. It wasn't just about trying to come to a, an esoteric and philosophical and carefully reasoned and well-stated belief of, of or, or statement of what we believe. That wasn't why Paul was doing all that. Paul was saying all of that. And, and all of the theology of the church is about changing people's lives, about meaning something in our hearts and in our minds and in our relationships with God and each other. You can memorize all the theology in the world. You can know the scriptures up one side and down the other. But if the truth doesn't penetrate your heart, your mind, your soul, your life, it's meaningless. And so here we see about the great truth that penetrated the lives of real people. And we learn to appreciate them. And then we learn to appreciate the faithful of our own churches today and what they contribute to our lives. We learn to be grateful for the church wherever it exists, whether it's in Jerusalem or in Rome or in any other place in the world. Paul appreciated, Paul knew the church as it existed in his time in many different places, and we still benefit from knowing people in churches all around the world who are faithful in their own context, who are faithful in their own lives, in their own way. And so from these first Christians, you and I find a great deal of inspiration for how we ourselves will believe and how we will live. Let's continue reading verses 17 through 20 of chapter 16. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and offenses in opposition to the teaching that you have learned. Avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I want you to be wise in what is good and guileless in what is evil. The God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. In this section, Paul returns briefly to a discussion that he had earlier in what we call chapters 14 and 15, a discussion about the problem of the unity within the church. The early church was very small. It was very weak. It was brand new. It might not survive. It could not afford to be divided. And yet there were those who actively sought to pursue their own agendas at the expense of unity. Dissension and disunity are nothing less than the work of Satan. The early church found a way to continue to survive, even in the midst of all of the arguments and problems that they had, which are still common in the life of the church, they found a way to hold together and they survived and they thrived. We have to wonder in our own day about the high cost of the fragmented nature of God's church. Is it indeed the best witness to the world? Does it indeed provide the greatest... Uh, place where we can nurture new disciples when we are so divided from each other, especially over so many non-essential things. 
Paul makes one last plea, if you will, to the church in Rome, the Christian people there, to stay together in the unity of faith that they shared in Jesus Christ. I like to think that it was one of his last thoughts because it was one of his most important thoughts to the people in the fellowship in Rome. Well, let's look then at the final section, verses 25 through 27. Now to God, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed, and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the Gentiles, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Well, here's the end of what many agree is one of the most influential books of the Scripture and therefore one of the most influential writings of all time. You might have noted that we skipped over verse 24. (laughs) That's because in most ancient texts, verse 24 is omitted, but there are some that include a phrase there. It's a phrase that you're familiar with. It is the phrase that goes this way, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. Amen. It's taken out because there was a little bit more that Paul added. Maybe there's some evidence of some editing going on of different texts that have come into play. I like to think that perhaps Paul simply used that benedictory phrase all the time. The grace of Jesus be with you. Let's talk about disunity. The grace of Jesus be with you. Let's talk about the faithfulness of Onephanus and Trephosa and all of the others. The grace of Jesus be with you. Who knows? All we know is that this final passage, verses 25 to 27, is one of the great benedictions in all the scriptures. It begins with praise of God and description to God of all the credit for the blessings of all creation. It focuses on the gospel, on the story of what God has done to redeem and renew his creation in Jesus It acknowledges that the story of Jesus makes clear, makes plain, a great mystery. The deep truth of the nature and purpose of human existence and of God's will for all things. That's what a mystery is in the language of the first century. Not a hidden secret that nobody is supposed to know, or only a few. Really, a better way to translate it today would be to say that God has made known the deep truth of everything, a truth that not everyone sees admittedly, but that we see most clearly in the life of Jesus. This mystery, of course, has begun to be revealed already in the prophetic writings, and not just in the prophetic writings, but in the whole history of God's interaction with that particular people begun in the line of Abraham, the people we know as the Jews, the nation of Israel. This mystery, this deep truth now is revealed to and includes within it not just the Jews, but the Gentiles, everyone else. And the mystery is revealed because God wants it to be so.
It is God himself who has revealed this mystery. God doesn't keep secrets. God doesn't reveal himself only to a few and not to others. God reveals himself to all. It is up to us to see and to comprehend and to understand and then to change. You see, the purpose of God's action in Jesus is to restore the whole creation to what the scriptures call obedience. We don't like that word obedience. To us, it means blind slavery of some kind, obeying a more powerful master, if you will. But in the scriptures, obedience simply means living in accordance with something, living in the right relationship, in the right way, the way for which you were created. Obedience is about being in the right place for the right reason and accomplishing the intended results. It is as we put ourselves back into the place where we were meant to be in creation. And as God opens that place to us through Jesus Christ, that God is glorified and that we find our highest good and blessing and that we bless the whole world. So let me ask you a few questions. Who are the people in your own circle of faith? that mean the most to you? If you were to write a letter to them, just like Paul was writing, who would you list? And what would you say about them? What have they done in your life or in the life of the church that's meaningful and important? Or if someone else were to write a letter that included you in their list, what would they say about you and how you had been meaningful or helpful or useful in their own walk with Christ? How have you contributed to the fragmentation of the church? That's the other side, isn't it? Would someone write a letter one day and say, so-and-so was a problem, so-and-so destroyed the church, so-and-so undermined the faith, so-and-so took people away from Christ and into a life of destruction and death and meaninglessness? That's not the list I want to be on. Finally, this question, how does this great benediction of the final few chapters these final few verses now, how do they inspire greater faith in the gospel? How do they inspire in you greater fidelity to Jesus as you follow him? Romans answers a lot of questions, but only you can answer that final question about what it will mean in your life. I pray that you've been blessed by this study. I pray that you have been nurtured and encouraged and deepened and developed in your faithful walk in Jesus. And I'll keep praying that you'll keep walking. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you today and always. Amen.